Well, friends, welcome to Advent, the season of waiting, <laughs> of preparing for Christmas. I got the question like, hey, it's Christmas time. Where's the trees? Like, they're coming, folks. It's a season of waiting, and that's all part of it, the, the, the slow roll toward Christmas. And while it is a season of waiting, it isn't primarily about your waiting, but about Jesus coming to meet those who wait, which is really good news for all of us, but I think especially good news for those of us that meet this season with less than eagerness. That if if this feels like one more time where I have to make it look like or act like I've got things all together or I'm really excited about how life is going, this is good news. If this feels like a time where, man, I am worn out or frustrated, or lonely, or struggling to live the life that you've been given. This is good news, that in the midst of all the things that keep us feeling like we're wandering around in the dark, hope is both possible and available. Though it is hope different than how we sometimes talk about it. And to get into the one, the hope that God's got to give us today, the the hope that as we work our way around the Advent wreath, uh, we light this candle today because it's a candle uh, of hope. And and each week there'll be another thing that goes uh, along with each of those candles. Today, it's hope. And today as we look at hope, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, what was read just a moment ago. So if you'd open your Bible uh, and get there, Isaiah chapter 9. If you need to use the table of contents to get there because you don't spend a lot of time in Isaiah, I understand. Uh, But we will today. And grow to love it uh, a bit more. Isaiah chapter 9. There should be a Bible in front of you in the, the rack there, or you can pull out a digital version, or if you've brought your own, that's awesome too. So I, Isaiah chapter 9. As you get there, I think give credit where credit is due. Uh, man, credit to Pastor Zach Beers, different uh, pastor than Zach Toth, uh, but his commentary on hope in Isaiah 9, man, beautiful, and some of those good things that I'll get to share with you today. Now, the words that were read a little bit ago from Isaiah chapter 9, for how many people was that a familiar text? Heard that one before. Okay, good, quite a few of you, perfect. Uh, I never realized that as I've, uh, as those song, or as those words are laid out there, it's laid out like a psalm or like a song. That this is a song that God was giving his people to sing. And just like Pastor Brian uh, said last week as he was preaching on Psalm 46, it's like a mini-sermon put to a melody for the sake of memory. Uh, some things that you can hang on to a little bit better. Like, like I want to hang on to Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness, because there's a melody that goes along with it. This is what God was intending to give to his people here as well. Because, man, songs have a way of pushing through the darkness. Maybe it's that song. Maybe it's some of the words that you're going to hear now, a way of, of clearing through things when you're stuck in the fog of frustration or fear, that music has a way of breaking through. This song is prophecy that's supposed to help them break through and see Jesus both in his first coming that that at this point in history is still 700 years in the future when it's originally written by Isaiah, but also to look ahead to Jesus' second return that's still to come for all of us, a song to remind them not to lose hope. But the hope that's talked about here is not hope like we often talk about it. We often talk about that we hope for things. Like, I hope for myself 
that I hope for completing tasks that are hanging over my head so that I can just be done with them. I hope for friends that will love me for who I am and walk with me through life. I hope for uh, improved relationships with all the people in my life, parents, children, spouse. Maybe for you it's a, a hope for things in this world to somehow work out so there'd be a greater amount of peace and a less amount of selfishness. And it's, it's not bad to hope for things, but that's not the hope that God is reminding us of here in Isaiah 9. This is a song of hope in something. A hope that is more solid than circumstance, that brings more relief than things working out. It seeks hope in God's long-standing track record. Hope in his character. Hope in his action now and in the future. Hope that remains, friends, unshakable even when circumstances don't work out. Unshakable even when we're in the midst of the struggle. It is a song worth singing. And it was a song sung by Isaiah to people, words given by God to Isaiah to speak to the people who at that point were in distress, great distress, because a neighboring nation was coming in and oppressing them, and life wasn't any longer how it was supposed to look, at least in their own minds. It was far from what they had hoped for, and God reminding them that he is still at work in that life. Sounds like something that people need to hear. Something you need to hear? Isaiah 9, let's, let's read it through again. I'll make some comments along the way, so bear with me. We start at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of, and these two, Zebulun and Naphtali, these are lands of God's people. So he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the past, but in the future, he will honor not only those same lands, but, but more of them and wider of them and more peoples. He'll honor Galilee of the Gentiles and the way by the sea and all along the Jordan. And now the part probably that's a little more familiar, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then he describes this light, this peace and joy of battles continued. And I want you to notice here the tense of it all. The, the you know, not past, but rather present tense of these things. He's going to speak about what will be as if it has already happened, happened because he's so certain of what will be that he can speak of it as something completed in the past. So he writes, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice in dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. We're going to burn all the stuff we use for battle because we don't need to battle anymore, because peace has come. How? For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
And I don't know about you, as you listen through a song, but sometimes a, a lyric or a word or something will stick with you for a time and hang on to a truth that's in here. There's a few things that I think are worth hanging on to. And the first is the motivation of the one that is speaking. It's talked about in that very last sentence. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, certainly it's important to know who's speaking, but when you know the motivation of the one who's speaking, it adds even more color to it. Like, uh, for example, uh, anybody familiar with the phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? Anybody heard that one before? Yes, okay. Uh, essentially, there's, it means that there's no greater anger than that of a woman who's been rejected in love. Well, the word zeal here refers to a similar level of intensity and arises similarly out of angst of rejection. So the picture is this, our God, the Lord, the creator of the universe, he's the speaker, and he's pictured not only as the victorious king that now we get to burn up all the stuff from the battles because the battles are done and peace is now here, the one who will reign on David's throne of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, but he's also pictured like the husband that longs for his wife. Zeal here, it could be translated passion or jealousy. Uh, the, the passion of a husband for his wife or the, the jealousy of a husband uh, if that love is given to someone other than him. He wants to be the first love again, to recapture her attention. He's assuming the understanding is, is that uh, like God the Father is like a husband to the, his people, the church. Uh, Jesus Christ has talked about this way, that, that he is the groom and we are the bride. He's not okay with his bride wandering in the darkness, looking for the things that they need in this world rather than in him. He's not okay with them being in the darkness of having no hope, not okay with them not understanding that they are his bride, that we are his bride, and he, the loving husband. This is a picture of our God, both as warrior king and as passionate, jealous husband. And through the prophet Isaiah, he sings this song to his bride, the people of God. He sings this song to us, and his desire is to break through to break through all the excuses of why his people have become complacent, to break through and, and help find out why they've stopped waiting on him, to break through their, their sinfully looking in other places and all that distracts them from looking to him. He's saying, come back to your first love and realize that I'm not just waiting, but longing, chasing, in angst all the time that you are away. <laughs> Notice as well that he's not inviting you to get things in order. This song pushes back on the thought process that maybe you've come at uh, as you think about a Christmas and things that, man, I, I really want this year to be a good Christmas. I, I want to experience the, the fullness of the joy and all that comes along with that. So I really need to get my act together so that I can experience the fullness of the hope of Christmas. That, that I need to get, make sure that the advent calendar and the candles and the devotions are set up, that the, that the tree and the lights and the meals and the special traditions are prepared for. The thought that, that I need to find hope in my life. If I can just get these things together, if I can just figure out a way, if I could just, well, I don't know, fill in the blank for you. If I could just whatever, then, then it would turn out. Then I could find the hope that I'm looking for. This song is reminding us hope that's offered here is not hope that's found. It's hope that's given.
God is the one who offers us his light. It's not the other way around. He is the main actor in the hope business. He's the one that brings light into the darkness. We don't bring the light. We don't find the light. No amount of getting our lives arranged will illuminate hope or make hope reality in our lives. We are recipients of the light. Like a plant is the recipient of the sun, we are dependent. Yet how often when God offers his light, do we, like the people Isaiah is speaking to, choose darkness instead? Go back just a minute in, in Isaiah there, to Isaiah 8, the, the couple verses just before chapter 9. Look at verse 19. He speaks of where things are right now and why yeah, he speaks these words to them in Isaiah 9. So verse 19, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. We'll get back to that. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward and will curse their God and their king. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and then they will be thrust into outer darkness. Let me break it down and give you some highlights here. Verse 19, basically, they're looking to consult mediums and spiritists instead of inquiring to their God. They're going to look to other sources of wisdom rather than to their God. And the result, verse 20, they will have no light of dawn. It's like uh, one of those mornings, maybe some of you guys have done this, where you, you wake up and you swear that it's got to be morning, but you look at the clock and it's like 12.15. Anybody had some mornings like that? I've had a few lately. Okay, yes. And, and then you try to go back to sleep, and then you wake up again, and you're like, oh, it's only 12.18. I really didn't go back to sleep. And you try again, and then it's 1.02, and, and things all throughout the night, and it just seems like the morning is never going to come. But what if it never did? Like, what if the sun never came up? If the darkness just continued? This is the picture here of being a people who have no dawn. That a people for whom the sun will never come up in their lives, those who are chasing after wisdom in this world, they are like the people who the sun will never come up on this. All that they hope for is failing. All the ways they're trying to fix their lives and fix their world aren't working, and it only leads to more darkness. And what does, it, what does that lead to? He says in 21 and 22, distress, wandering, hungering. What does it lead them to do as a result of that? They get frustrated, and then they look, looking upward, it says in verse 21, they curse their king and their God. In short, they turn their noses up at God. Uh, maybe you guys had this experience at the uh, Thanksgiving table, uh, a young child uh, getting encouraged by their parents, hey, you should really eat the Brussels sprouts, and the kid does this. You know, turn, turns their nose up at it, like, ah, I don't think so. Uh, I don't like that solution or that decision. We do this. Uh, it, it's not just uh, little kids eating Brussels sprouts and things. We do this in, in relationships, whether with our kids or to parents, with your spouse. You hear something that you don't like, and... Well, I'm not going to talk to you now. And we give him the silent treatment. You do this to God as well. When things don't go our way, not our timing. We like to be in charge. 
to steal a little bit from Jeremiah, for the plans I have for myself, says Adam. Plans to prosper, plans for things to be in order, plans for things to be timely, for people to do things my way that haven't turned out that way. And what happens then? Frustration. And then we too, just like them, end up, instead of turning to God, to his plan and his timing, the reality that he is working all these things out so that he can eliminate the darkness by sending his son, the light who will overcome the darkness. No, instead of turning to him, we get distressed and fearful and end up, I don't know about thrust, but walking ourselves out into the outer darkness. Because we seek hope in all the wrong places. This was their reality. To what extent is it yours? As we prepare for Christmas, there is definitely darkness out there. But part of lighting the candles in here is a reminder that the darkness is in here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have turned their noses up at God, said, I've got a better plan. All have inherited darkness and caused greater darkness. Part of Advent, part of lighting the candles is coming back to our brokenness, back to the darkness that's in our own hearts. It's admitting, again, all those times where I say I don't agree with God, that I am broken, that I'm helpless without him, and turning from that posture, because as long as we remain in that, things will never get better. There will be no dawn. The gift of Christmas is a reminder of how weak we are and how fragile we are, how we have no bartering chips in our relationship with God. But rather, we are a people of the nevertheless God. Go back to verse one of Isaiah nine. Oh, what's the first word in there? Call it out. Nevertheless. So all of those things before that, but nevertheless, let this be our refrain, nevertheless. He says, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress and the blessing that's coming in all those places and to all those people in verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has, what's it say? Dawned. A light has dawned. Nevertheless, God says, I see the darkness. I see your sin. I see your distress. I see you giving me the silent treatment, turning your nose up to me. But nevertheless, I'm the warrior king and the passionate one, and I'm coming for you anyway, my people. And these promises aren't just of future relief, but of present hope where it seems impossible. Now, again, I said this before, but I'll say it again. This was written and initially sung 700 years prior to its fulfillment in Jesus. But he speaks of present hope already now because the plan is in play and the hope is already now. The plan coming to pass is so certain that he teaches us to sing already now as if it is already done. A child is born, not will be born, is born. A son is given. And who is he? Already now, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and so on. Now this, now that that plan has come to pass, so that was 700 years before Jesus. Now we're at Jesus' uh, life. That, that's the celebration at Christmas. Now we're 2,000 years past that. But yet still looking ahead to what's still to come when Jesus comes 
again. And so we still are in a time of waiting, much like they are, but we still get that same kind of present hope now because the plan is in play and the second coming will come. So the hope is already now because God has proven himself to be that nevertheless God by working out his plan through Jesus supremely. That's the place he's proved it most of all. So we can trust that he will come again at that second coming. I know for many of you, in many ways, the here and now feels like that 12.15 in the morning. Just like those who 700 years before Jesus' coming felt like it was 12.15 in the morning, tempted to despair, wondering, Lord, when are you going to wrap all this up? When will relief come? The promise that was good then is a promise that's good now. God refused then and refuses now to let us stay in the darkness, to remain a people without a dawn. He says, even though we're in darkness, nevertheless, he has a plan and a purpose and a way to redeem the darkness in our lives. I don't know what the darkness is for you. What that darkness represents Maybe some things that you've shared with only the people closest to you. Maybe some things that you haven't shared with anybody. Maybe some things that you can only sense on the inside and haven't even been able to put words to. Whether that darkness is loneliness or loss, a strained relationship with a friend, a child, a spouse, parents. Whether that darkness is something in your own heart, a discouragement, anxiety, or the darkness is of the things that are going around in the world, how you see others treat other people, how you treat others. There's a deep, deep darkness outside of us and within us. And nevertheless, Each week we light these candles and we make a declaration like the prophet Isaiah, a declaration of what's presently true because the plan is in play. A prophetic declaration in the midst of darkness. We're lighting a candle as a reminder to one another and to ourselves that we are people of the light. We are people of the nevertheless. Amen? Amen. And it's not because of us. Not because we planned ahead or organized, right? Not because we found peace in all the relationships already or because we found resolution to our problems, but because God, the God of the universe, has a plan for the darkness, a plan for people on their last thread, a plan for when nations turn against him, a plan for when marriages split, a plan for when we lose, when we lose our loved ones. And he is in the mess and in the darkness and in the pain. He doesn't stand outside of the pain and say, hey, there's there's light over there. No, he's the one that goes into the pain. A light that goes into the darkness and illuminates it and dispels it. The pain, the weakness, the frustration. He brings light. He brings a dawn. He brings hope. Already now, as we wait with certainty about Jesus, the light of the world, who nevertheless is coming again. Amen.
May the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.